It is my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here. We are currently in a two-month sermon series called Jesus the Storyteller. And I've been sharing about the power of story, how story influences us, how it compels us to grow and evolve. And I've been talking about Jesus' use of story, that he was a rabbi, he was a teacher, and that he frequently took this narrative approach to his teaching style. Um, he, he loved to tell stories to help people grow. So we're walking through some of his stories to see how these stories might have something to say about how we live our lives today. Last month, I preached on four different stories Jesus told, the lost sheep, the mustard weed, the prodigal son, and the barren fig tree. I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series. It's funny that the preacher says that. I've really enjoyed this series. I don't know how you guys... Um, I have had great feedback, though, that um, it's been timely, that it's been applicable. So I encourage you, if you missed anything from June, go back. Listen, we've got videos on our Facebook and on our audio and our podcast through the website. Today, I want to preach a message entitled, Excuses, Masks, and Staves. Excuses, Masks, and Staves. And here's my plan this morning. I want to talk about excuses. <laughs> wait, wait 15 more minutes. <laughs> I want to talk about excuses, how we use them, how they use us, and how we're invited to move beyond them into living authentic and full lives. And here's what I want to ponder with you this morning. I want to ask you to ponder with me this morning. Let's put that slide up. Excuses disguise your true priorities, and they limit your capacity for life, but you get to determine the scope of their power over you. Excuses disguise your true priorities and they limit your capacity for life, but you get to determine the scope of their power over you. To begin, confession. Making excuses comes all too easily for me. Hi, my name is Josh, and I'm an excuser. <laughs> Thank you. I often find myself in situations where I'd rather not take responsibility, where I'd rather pass blame to avoid responsibility rather than own up to my reality. To illustrate, last year, um, if you guys were around, if you were around our church last year, you know that um, the Kolars were here, Nathan and Jess Kolar. We, uh, we were co-pastoring together all of last year. Um, and co-pastoring, co-lead pastoring is such an awesome model for church ministry. You have two people that complement each other. You have two people that trust each other, which we do and we did. But in October, Nathan shared with me that him and Jess felt called to go to Nashville to plant another church. Um, and it's awesome, and we love it, and we're excited for them. They're actually doing awesome stuff. I encourage you to even just go on Facebook or on Instagram and watch Risen Church, watch what they're doing. We support them financially as a church here. But when Nathan left, it left me to reassess the workload of the lead pastor role. I had to think through how to accomplish what both Nathan and I were doing together. So I adjusted my schedule. I was delegating. I started delegating stuff to our team here. But to be transparent with you, I quickly began to feel overwhelmed. I quickly began to feel stressed about all that there was and is to accomplish. And then you add to that Shiloh, our second born. He was born a few weeks later after the Kolars left. So in January, I find myself learning how to be a good husband with two kids while trying to lead pastor a small church. And as a result, do you know what began to fade? My alone time with God. Sure, I prayed a lot. Sure, I still read the Bible, and it's not like I, I left the faith or started a cult or cheated on my wife or anything. But my regular, intimate, alone time with God, which was previously disciplined and was joy-filled, it began to wane. It began to just fade and to thin. And it made logical sense. 
It's a season. I'm a husband. I have two kids. I'm a lead pastor of a small church. I don't really have a lot of margin right now. I'm just going to pray more throughout my day. And there's some validity to that. I want to I honor that. But you know what I still had time for? Watching a lot of movies, social media, making coffee in the mornings. I was excusing my, my waning devotional life because I was busy, because I was hurried, and God gently convicted my heart. Not in this shaming way, but he just simply revealed to me what my true concerns were. It's like he just held up a mirror to me. He exposed to me how necessary I actually believed consistent alone time with God is. Not just nice, but essential for our lives. He spoke to my heart. Josh, you know every morning you spend about 25 minutes making coffee? But then you attempt to find time for me in the rest of your day? So as, as objectively as I could, I asked myself, Josh, what would you actually say you believe to be most important in your life? What would you actually say you believe to be priority in your life? And as I moseyed through excuses, the, the deeper beliefs began to, to rise up. That I appreciate my alone time with God. I think it's important, but it's not crucial. Because if it was crucial, I wouldn't have to find time for it. The excuse of a full calendar, a lot of responsibility, it simply disguised the fact that I just didn't want to make alone time with God a priority this season. And maybe you can relate, and I don't even just mean with spending time with God. I mean, whatever you claim to be important, yet your actions don't back up what you say is important. Perhaps you think exercise is essential, yet you haven't worked out in weeks. Or maybe you believe it's vital to read often, but you don't remember the last book you finished. Or you value face-to-face conversations, but you haven't made an effort to connect with any of your close friends or family lately. I believe maturity causes our actions to align with what we think and say is important to us. And sometimes maturity causes us to discover that what we thought was a personal core value is not as crucial as we actually say it is. And as we read through the Gospels, we notice this is the type of effect that Jesus had on people. He uncovered deep intentions of their hearts. And he had this unique approach. It's like, it's like he even gave people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you're not lying about what you say is important. Maybe you're just fooling yourself. So let's dig a little bit into your heart and find out what really matters to you down, down there. He had this way of asking questions and telling stories that uncovered a person's desires and intentions and priorities. And today I want to look at one of those stories. So if you brought your Bible or your Bible app, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we have Bibles on the back table if you actually want to hold one. Love it when people actually bring their Bibles. I'm not shaming people if don't because smartphones, apps, and all that stuff. It's wonderful. We can hold our Bible in our pocket. <laughs> but I'm a traditionalist in, in many senses, and I just, I just love holding a Bible. Before we jump into this story, though, I want to I paint the setting for you. Um, right before Jesus tells this story, the setting is he's sitting at a table. He's been invited by a prominent Pharisee to, to share a meal at this man's house, along with other religious experts and elites and they're having some back and forth conversation about the Torah, about the, the religious law and how it plays out in our lives. And then Jesus tells this story. This is Luke 14, starting in verse 16. So Jesus said, a certain man was preparing a guest banquet, uh, sorry, a great banquet, and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell, to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, 
I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master, and the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, or the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. In Jesus' day, when someone hosted a banquet, they would send out this initial invitation, and the friends would receive the invitation, and then they would RSVP, similar to today. Yes, I'd love to attend. I'm sorry I can't be there. Think of like a wedding invite that you would get in the mail, except with this one, it wouldn't have the time of the wedding on it. In an age before the clock, the date of the banquet was announced long before, but the exact time was only announced the day of. So the day of the banquet, the meal would be prepared, everything would be arranged, the master of the home, he would send his servant or servants out into town, into the village, and invite everyone that's been invited and confirmed, hey, everybody, please come. Everything's ready to go. So in this story, the host has received these confirmations from his friends and his neighbors that they're going to be attending. The day has come. The preparations have been made. The meal is ready. So he sends his servant out into town. Go tell everybody. But as the guests hear that the banquet is prepared, excuse after excuse begins to pour in. I just bought a field. I need to go see it. I just bought a team of oxen. I'm actually just on my way to go see how they're doing. Oh, the banquet was today? I just got married. Yeah, I can't come. These excuses, they were, they were this thin covering that hid the fact that they just didn't want to attend the banquet. And the servant come back, servants, he comes back to, to report, people appear to be preoccupied, sir. They have other things going on. And, and the master's like, what are you talking about? They RSVP'd. They told me they were going to come. And in an honor culture, it is offensive. It is an exceptionally offensive thing to agree to come to a banquet and then decline the day of. And I even think outside of an honor culture, I mean, just like, it's not that hard to translate what's going on here even to our time and our day. Think about how the host is feeling. I mean, imagine today you send out a text to your friends and your family or an email or a Facebook invite, and you're like, hey, everybody, lately I've really been wanting to share a meal with the people that matter most to me. Just like a big celebration day. So I'm planning this get-together at the end of summer. It's going to be this, like, end-of-summer blowout. It's going to be awesome. Over at my place, I'm going to decorate it all real fancy. I'm going to do a ton of food. Plan for it. September 1. Put it on your calendar. It might be lunch. It might be dinner. It might be lunch. I don't know. Just mark the date. And the day of, I'm going to text you when to come over. And everybody texts back, awesome. This sounds like, this is so great. I'm, I'm, I'm putting it on my calendar right now. And the day comes, you head over to Costco, you purchase a ton of food, you start decorating your place, you clean your home, you cook up, you prepare the meal, you're close to ready, and you send that text out. Hey, everybody, everything's ready. Come on over. And you start getting texts back. I just bought a house today. I haven't seen it yet, though. So I'm going to go check it out. You get another text back, I just bought a litter of yellow lab puppies. I'm actually on my way over there to check them out right now. And another text, uh, I just got married today. Sorry, I can't come. I mean, how do you think you're going to feel in this moment? 
I told all of you about this day months back. You said you'd keep this day free. Why, why would you buy a house today and you haven't seen the house yet? You said you were going to, why would you buy five yellow labs today? You got married? Why didn't, why didn't I get invited to the wedding? <laughs> so now you're sitting on your couch. You're ready to have a party. You're ready to feast and your friends aren't coming. What's your next move? Fine. I'm not going to eat all this food by myself. I'm going to find somebody that wants to come party with me. So you start shooting out other texts, and more people show up. But there's still a ton of food. So you, you invite the homeless guy down, your, down the road. And you invite that crazy bird lady neighbor that nobody wants to hang out with. And you call up your eccentric boss that never gets invited to anything. Come over. There is a feast at my place. Somebody's got to enjoy this with me. And this is what Jesus does in the story. The host, he invites anybody that wants to come. And the servant goes through the village. He's searching for anybody who wants to attend, even if they're considered to be a lower social status. It doesn't matter who you are. We're having a feast. Come on over. And then the, servant, his, the servant returns again. I've told everybody in town, and there's still room at your table. The master says, okay, go further. Go beyond the town. Go find further outcasts. I don't care if they don't know me. If they don't know me, convince them to come. Tell them about me. I want to share this joy with someone. Jesus gently, this story, he gently suggests God delivers invites. We deliver excuses. I want to come back to this. Excuses disguise your true priorities and they limit your capacity for life but you get to determine the scope of their power over you. I've been pastoring for 10 years now, and I'm one of the like classic shepherd pastor, pastor shepherd gifts. I love being with the people. And I've, I've been in many different contexts in Southern California, San Diego, Orange County, LA, Inland Empire, everything from youth to adult ministry. And while I found people to be incredibly diverse, I've also discovered that we're not all that different. I'm consistently impressed at how well-versed we are at coming up with excuses for our current reality. Rationalizations to defend our behavior, to neglect our current responsibilities. And please, please hear me, I'm included in this. Pastors are not immune to excuses. This is a human problem. As human beings, we blame shift. As human beings... We, we insist that change is not possible in this circumstance, that our current reality is not our fault. And maybe your excuses of late have to do with how much time you spend on social media or how much money you spend on clothes or to justify chronically showing up late to things or your poor eating habits or being rude to people or maybe to rationalize why you won't shoot for your dreams or that why you won't commit to a relationship longer than three months at a time. We all make excuses. But generally, things don't change until we want to take responsibility for our lives. We have to learn to transcend our excuses, to overcome them. But in order to overcome them, we have to admit first that we're making excuses. I want to show you how this works. They disguise your true priorities, and they limit your capacity for life. Masks and staves. I want to talk for a second about masks and staves. First, excuses act as masks. We learn to hide behind. Let's put that picture up, that next one. Masks and staves. 
Excuses act like as masks for us to hide behind. They attempt to veil what truly matters to us. But if we look closely, we can discover what we actually value. Like the three friends in this story, their excuses for not being able to attend the banquet, it simply revealed they didn't want to attend the banquet. It wasn't about their excuse. It was a thin veil that just said, I actually don't want to go. It was a thin shroud that revealed they didn't want to show up because the banquet was not a priority to them. The great and terrible thing about excuses is they reveal what we actually want. Excuses often express we don't want to change because in some way, we believe we're benefiting from our current reality, even if it's in a subconscious way. And be cautious to deny this quickly because the more intelligent we are, the more capable we are of rationalizing our excuses to ourselves. I've made excuses that I believe myself. <laughs> when I look them in the face, I'm like, Josh, you're just, you're just making up crap excuses right now. Own up to this. We wear excuses like masks. But if we're paying attention, and I'd like to suggest that the other people in your life are paying attention to your excuses as well. They're probably more aware of them than you are. It becomes fairly obvious that we value other things, that we have different priorities, masks. And then staves. If you're not familiar with the term, staves are those vertical planks of the panels on a barrel. So what I hope to highlight with this crappy clip art, sorry, it's the best I could find, <laughs> is that the shortest stave determines the barrel's capacity. The lowest stave on the barrel determines how much that barrel can hold. Does that make sense? And what I'd like to suggest this morning is that your most shallow excuse for your current reality will so serve as your lowest stave of your barrel. It will determine how much life you can hold. It will limit your capacity for life and joy and wholeness and thriving relationships, holding down a job. Ben Franklin once said, he that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. Ding. <laughs> Go Ben. Excuses limit us. In my experience, people with chronic and shallow excuses don't live very full lives either. But when it comes to your, to your excuses, you get to choose the scope of their power over you. You get to choose how much power they have over you. If you want to mature, if you want your life to be more whole, more full, you have to take responsibility for your life. And I want to know there's a difference between responsibility and fault. If you run a red light and you hit another car... That was your fault, and it's your responsibility. If someone leaves a baby on your doorstep today, that's not your fault, but that's, that baby's now your responsibility. As human beings, we will regularly find ourselves in situations where we're responsible for experiences that aren't our fault. That's just true. That's part of life. It's part of adulting. You, can't, you, you can blame others for how you got here, but, but no one else is responsible for your life now that you're here. And no doubt, I want to give room here for trauma. I want to give room here for uniquely damaging situations. Some people have been put through haunting and horrific experiences, stuff that only prayer and therapy can begin to scratch the surface of. I get that, and there's room for that. There's space for that. But generally speaking, you get to choose how you see things. You get to choose how you react to things. You get to choose whether or not you will change. If we're honest... We can all admit we choose destructive behaviors. Repeatedly, 
And we know they're destructive. We choose lazy behaviors and selfish behaviors and harmful behaviors, and then we blame shift. God, my parents, the town I grew up in, my, national, my nationality, the other political party, the competition, the economy, the traffic. We love to blame our immature and our underdeveloped choices on the closest victim. But at some point, you have to take responsibility for your life. Because if it's never your fault, you'll never grow up. The last comment in the story, Jesus says, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is Jesus, you guys know what a lazy Susan is, that thing on the table? This is Jesus rotating the lazy Susan to the Pharisees. The religious experts, the spiritual masters, you men, you think you have so much figured out. You have been invited by God to recline at his feast, to sit at him at the table. Do you guys realize you keep coming up with excuses? Because your excuses are causing you to miss out on the feast. And this is the central component of this parable. It's the table. You know, the table doesn't, it doesn't translate well into our culture. In early Jewish tradition, they had this phrase, every table is an altar. Sharing a meal was a holy moment. Very unlike our culture. They realized that you don't have to go to a church or a temple or a mosque to encounter God. You don't have to go to some spiritual authority to get this, like, connection. In early Jewish tradition, every table is an altar, a place where you confront the divine place where you encounter God. We gather around a table, around a meal, because it came from the earth. It's holy because we have this direct connection to God through this food. And the table was a familiar and routine reminder to pause, to slow down, to reflect on the fact that life is a gift. And that the very elements that sit on this table right now in front of us, they're provided by our God, by our creator. Yes, it's a table. Yes, it's a standing piece of wood or metal or, or plastic to, to provide a space to eat, but it, it's a place that we are connected to the divine, which means it's more than a table, it's an altar. And when we gather over this, this table to share life, to share pain, to share joy, we're connecting with the depths of our lives. So we're challenged not to skim across the surface, the surface, this superficial, thin living. We're challenged to look closer, to actually see the person that sits on the other side of the table. It's an invitation to breathtaking fellowship, life-giving intimacy, faithful presence of the other, covenant relationship with the other. This is why the table is so profound in Jewish tradition. And while Jesus is most known for, for eating with the worst of sinners, that's what we always talk about. He eats with sinners. We, we love that. But I want to point out again the, the context of this story. He's eating with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the religious elites. Jesus does not deny anyone a place at this table. He shares meals with Pharisees and prostitutes and teachers and tax collectors and elites and exiles. This is his table and through it, God declares, come just as you are. Encounter my love for you. Intimate friendship, despite all your faults. And in fact, if you get close enough, I'm going to redeem your faults in a way that are going to cause healing for other people. It's the table. Jesus sits at the table with Pharisees. He declares, you have been invited by God to feast with him at his table, this intimate union, intimate life with him. And every one of you has been invited, no matter your status or your mistakes or your religious or political affiliation, and you keep coming up with excuses. 
Jesus says, Pharisees, I have a message for you. Just because you know a bunch about God doesn't mean you're intimate with him. Just because you know you've been invited to the party doesn't mean you're at the party. And just because you make others feel like outsiders and outcasts doesn't mean they're not going to show up to the party. Anybody who's not going to be at this feast is it going to be because they chose not to come. If you're outside the feast, it's because you prioritized something in front of this feast. This is, this is what Jesus shares with the Pharisees that day. And, and I'm, I don't think his message has changed that much. You're invited by God to the great banquet, to beauty, to new life, to wholeness, to intimate fellowship with the God of the universe, but you will be tempted to fill your schedule with competing interests and then to make up excuses for not showing up to the feast. So as I wrap a bow on this sermon today, I want to challenge you to contemplate with me that God has invited you to intimate fellowship with him what excuse is most hindering you today? God's invited you to intimate fellowship with him today. What excuse is standing in your way from intimacy, from communion, from friendship with the God that calls you his beloved? I want to invite up Josh. As we go into a, a time of worship and response through song, Here's how I want to close. There's a lot of brokenness in our world. A lot of division and poverty and anger and hatred and abuse. And God's plan for redeeming the world, for making whole all this destruction, is his church. It's a wild idea. I would not have done it this way. Apparently he knows something I don't. His plan for redeeming the world is his church. It's not pastors. It's not ultra-religious people. It's not just missionaries and Bibles professors. It's the church. It's the whole church. The hope of the world is a group of people committed to the way of Jesus and to the renewal of our cities. And the only way we have access to this kind of power is by sticking really close to the heart of Jesus. It's a kind of intimate fellowship that transforms us and the world that we're called to serve. And it starts at the table. This is why communion is so, so crucial. Because this is what the table says. It says, come, come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy burden, I'm going to give you rest. And life for your soul. You know, there's a scripture found at the end of this book. In the book of Revelation, it's Jesus talking. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with them, and they'll eat with me. This is an invitation sent to each heart. Jesus stands at the door of your heart knocking. He's asking if you will share a meal with him, to share a holy moment with him, to share intimate fellowship with him today. What's stopping you? What excuse keeps popping up? Excuses and masks and staves, they will limit you. And Jesus invites you to transcend them into living authentic and full lives. You know, Augustine wrote, You've made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You were created by God to enjoy him 
and be enjoyed by him. This is the great banquet. It's not just another event. It's not just a religious activity. It's the purpose of your existence. So as we move into a time of response, worship, and song, I hope to inspire you. Slow down. Place your hurries, place your worries in front of God. Place your excuses in front of God. Stop working for a moment. Stop accomplishing for a moment. And pay attention to what God might be speaking to your heart. Because he's present to you right now. He's present with you right now. And he invites you to encounter his presence to receive his love. So God, that's what we do. We slow down in this moment. And we, we fix our gaze on you. The author, the perfecter of our faith, our creator, our sustainer, our provider. We come to the altar. We come to the table for intimate fellowship. We pray that you transform us, God.